you would please turn with me to Mark chapter 7. I want to read verses 1 through 23. This is the inerrant word of God written for us to receive with faith. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. When he had called all the multitudes to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, you thus, without understanding also, do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not enter into his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Amen. Father God, we look to your word and ask that you would uh, be pleased to uh, bring sanctification in us, uh, bring wisdom, give your illumination, we pray, and uh, help me to faithfully give an exposition of your word and help us, each and every one, to both hear and to do it. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen may be seated. You've probably frequently heard the expression that a uh, good conscience is a sign of a poor memory. And uh, even though there is an element of truth in that, it's not entirely correct because uh, we're going to be seeing, maybe it's next week, I'm not sure, but we're going to be seeing that Christians can have a completely clean, pure conscience and what a joy it is when they don't have a conscience that's working against them. 
And we're going to be seeing today that uh, people who are perfectly guilty can have a clean conscience before, during, and after the sin. Uh, the conscience is not a totally reliable uh, guide. In fact, we're going to be seeing that a sensitive conscience can actually be the cause of leading a person into sin. And uh, that may sound like a major paradox, but it's just one of many in terms of the conscience that makes Jeremiah say, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Nobody can understand the human heart. I think we just need to take God's word at face value when he says, there's the things that you need to do to realign your heart. He knows about our hearts and he knows what things we can do to change it. But in our first lesson, we saw that the conscience was given to Adam and Eve before the fall. We saw next that it was affected by the fall. And uh, we saw that it was composed of three things. We saw that it was composed of the, the legislative, the judicial, and the executive functions, which correspond to the sense of law, the ability to judge, and the sense of the judgment of God or of other people. And all three of those have been affected by sin, which means the conscience cannot be treated as if it's the voice of God infallibly speaking to you. Uh, the conscience many times is messed up, but we ought not to ignore it either uh, because it is part of the image of God and man. And we saw that it was sort of like the dashboard of your car. You got some lights on there. And occasionally those lights will come on when they're not supposed to com be coming on. And uh, that's the way the conscience is. It's fluttering, saying you, there's something wrong, when really there isn't anything wrong. And other times, when there is something desperately wrong with the engine, it doesn't even come on. And so the light needs to be fixed. It needs to be realigned. But we just don't do away with the light. Now, last time, we started to look at Roman numeral 3, point B, looking at what happens if a person does not work diligently at realigning his conscience. So the first thing that we saw is it remains weak, uh, undeveloped, and there are serious consequences to having a weak or an undeveloped uh, conscience. And uh, there are other things that can happen. You can see those at the bottom of the outline. Um, <clears throat> things like it can be overly sensitive. It can be held hostage to the scruples of others, totally insensitive, slow in reacting, and in other ways unreliable. Now, I, I'm not sure that I'm going to be preaching on all of those points. I've given them there for completeness. But I do want to preach today on subpoint two. <clears throat> and I've amplified subpoint two so that you can have a little bit more detailed notes. And I want to start using the Pharisees as an illustration. In Mark 7, we see two sides to the Pharisees. The first side that we see is the legalistic side. It's the side that just likes to nitpick with the law and likes to add all kinds of new laws, likes to appear holy to other people. In fact, the way that they structured their lives, they, others that were around them said, boy, these guys are pretty good. They're going above and beyond the call of duty. So there was the legalistic side that delighted in law. But then there was the other side that Mark 7 portrays where they were quite capable of going into sin. And it may almost seem like a contradiction, but it is not. It is not a contradiction at all. In fact, I want to demonstrate how um, not only are they compatible, but that the legalism of point one always leads to the antinomianism of point two. Uh, legalism, the adding of man's laws to God's laws will always end up taking away from God's laws in some dimension. It always works that way. 
Uh, in fact, that's uh, part of the way that uh, God has, has made the conscience. But let's just take a look at the evidences of, uh, first of all, legalism. Verse 2 says, Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. And legalists love to find fault with other people. In fact, they're quite keen on that. It's very easy to find fault with the others. They can't see the fault in themselves. And he says, uh, they found fault for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, Alfred Edersheim goes through and he shows what that special way was, how they did it. And he said it, uh, they used about the amount of water that could fit in one and a half eggshells. It's not very much water, but it didn't need to be because these were new ceremonial laws that were added uh, for the people. And uh, it didn't really have to do with making sure your hands were clean before you ate. In fact, they had to have clean hands before they washed or this ritual cleansing wouldn't even work. And um, before the time of Christ, and it was shortly before that time, they, uh, two schools, two major schools of the rabbis had gotten together and uh, there was blood drawn even at that time. They, they hated each other, but they managed to get together to formalize a whole bunch of regulations, including 18 regulations covering ceremonial washings that were added. And that's why it says in verse 3, it wasn't just the Pharisees, it says all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way. Christ had discipled these disciples out of that. Otherwise, they would have been doing that themselves, all of the Jews. This was cultural. This was something that had become a norm because these, uh, these uh, schools of the rabbis had imposed it upon, upon the Jewish nation. And so verse uh, 4 talks about some of these other ritual purifications. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and literally, that is, unless they baptize themselves. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing, and it's literally the baptisms of cups and pitchers, copper vessels, and uh, couches. So they didn't just baptize people, they baptized all kinds of things every day, you know. They wouldn't even sit on a couch in their house unless they, first of all, sprinkled some water of purification upon that. And the reason they did that is, hey, a fly that had lighted on a Gentile might have also sat on this couch, so we've got to keep purifying this. So you can see the kind of the direction that they were going uh, with, um, with, with these laws. And I want you to notice in verse 5, their question is not, why don't your disciples follow the Bible? Instead... And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Legalism is by definition adding to God's laws some of man's laws, adding the traditions or the customs of others in a way that it binds the conscience. And it doesn't matter that they were sincere. You know, people might say, hey, what's the big whoopee? You know, I mean, washing hands, how is that going to harm anybody? Better to be safe than sorry, right? Why not go along with what they're doing? And um, 
Uh, if you read the teachings of the Pharisees that have been preserved for us in the Talmud, you see that's actually what they were trying to do. They were trying to play it safe. They described what they were doing as putting a hedge around the law. So here is the laws of God that are in the middle, and they don't want people breaking those laws, so they say, how do we make it even more difficult to, keep, to, to break those laws? So they would add all kinds of things. So the hedges were out here, and they said, for example, that <clears throat> if we can make it as difficult as possible for Jews to have any social contact with Gentiles, then they won't be infected with their sinful ways. If we can keep women out of the public light, then they're not going to lust after men and men won't lust after them. You know, that's going to solve that problem. If we remove alcohol, then there won't be drunkenness. That was one of the laws that they had set up. And they had all kinds of things. What these Pharisees were saying is if we take away the opportunities to sin then we will take away sin. Does it sound like what goes on in rescue missions and what goes on in a lot of evangelical churches? I mean, it really is identical to what goes on. They're sincere. They're trying to play it safe. One minister told me, well, Phil, if we outlaw alcohol and remove alcohol, then there won't be any drunkenness. And I said, yeah, and if you outlaw food, there won't be any gluttony. And if you outlaw any women, there won't be any fornication with women. He said, that, that, I told him that just doesn't get to the heart. That's a legalistic way of dealing with issues. It is not dealing with the root issue. That's just going to transfer to some other kind of a problem. And yet this is the kind of thinking that is everywhere. And we saw in our last message that the conscience becomes disoriented in very unpredictable ways when it is subjected to a new law code, when it's looking to new judges and, uh, you know, whether other people will condemn me or approve of me, it becomes disoriented, and that is especially true when there is a conflict between God's laws and the cultural norms, okay? So there's going to be things that look normal in culture. When those come in conflict with the Scripture, the conscience begins to be disoriented and if it's manward oriented primarily, it's just going to go in the direction of uh, the culture. And in our perverted uh, culture, I think it's dangerous because there's all kinds of things that um, uh, come into conflict with the Scripture. If our conscience is mostly attuned to what people think, the traditions of man, to what is normal, quote-unquote, non-weird, quote-unquote, you know, then we're going to get ourselves into trouble because there will be weird things in the Bible, you know, that will come into conflict with cultures. They always do. And what we think of as weird in another culture, why in the world are Christians in that culture doing that? Well, that's normal for their culture. And they've just bought into it without even thinking. That's why we have to realign our, our conscience. In fact, interestingly, uh, what we are doing as the cultural norm many times can cause us to call other Christians legalists when they're following the biblical norm. It's just one of the paradoxes that, that uh, flows out of this, uh, this strange conscience that uh, has uh, fallen victim to the fall. Now let's look at the other side of their life. In uh, verse 6 it says, He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, and a hypocrite is a person who uh, portrays himself as one thing and has the 
you know, people have the reputation of being one thing, but really holds to something different. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. So keeping tradition, in other words, looking normal in the, com- in, in the culture, led them to boldly disobey clear biblical law. So Jesus indicates it is very possible for the conscience to verse 8, lay aside the commandment of God. Verse 9, reject the commandment of God. Verse 13, make the word of God of no effect. It's very easy for the conscience uh, to be able to do that if it's aligned toward man. And it doesn't take very long to read through the Talmud to see all kinds of ways. But, you know, a lot of people say they're law keepers. We need to realize they weren't law keepers. Uh, they kept the laws that were normal for their culture but they violated the laws that were not normal. And we'll look at some in a a moment. Matthew 23, verse 28 says that the Pharisees were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Not just some lawlessness, but full of lawlessness. And then it lists some of those things. Matthew 23, verse 25, accused them of extortion. Verses 30 through 36 of murder. Verse 14 of stealing widows' homes away from them. Verses 16 to 19 accused them of breaking their promises. It lists pride and deception and hypocrisy. And they were blind to it. They thought everything was A-OK in their lives, just like many people in the evangelical church are utterly blind to the fact that uh, they are in violation of God's law day in and day out. They feel uh, perfectly uh, at ease. And yet the purpose of this series is not to point the finger out there. It's to help our consciences uh, recognize if it needs alignment or not. It's quite easy, quite easy for us to make other people feel guilty over issues that the Scripture gives liberty on and at the same time be utterly blind. It's happened in my life. It can happen in any of our lives. We just need to recognize this is a weakness of the conscience. Our conscience needs to be reoriented. And if our sense of what is normal is taken from the culture rather than the Bible, if our conscience is oriented to what men think and judge and say, then we can end up feeling good where we should not and not feeling good where we should. In fact, there was, 30 years ago, there was a lot of things that I uh, felt guilty about that Christ would have offered to me and uh, it, it would have been perfectly appropriate and things that I didn't feel guilty about, that now, if I was to engage in them, I'd feel like I was violating God's law. In fact, uh, I just learned something uh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, I realized, hey, I'm out of, out of accord with God's word. I had no sense of shame, no sense of guilt whatsoever over it. And yet, we're growing in Christ, and we need to continually develop our consciences. Now, if you pull out your outline, let me read sub-point three says, the conscience thus has false guilt over what is good and or lack of guilt over what is truly evil because it is disoriented in all three dimensions of its makeup. The legislative function is misinformed on law and becomes comfortable in generating its own laws independently of Scripture. Ultimately, it looks to human authority to determine lawfulness. The judicial function, judgments, interprets God's judgments only through the grid of human judgment and authority. 
It is thus overly sensitive to anticipating what men approve or disapprove and misinterprets the anticipation of their judgments for the anticipation of God's judgments. The executive function, inner pain or peace, automatically follows. Even with God's law, this function only approves or disapproves as it anticipates man's approval or disapproval. Now, you might think that a person who was totally deaf on alcohol in any circumstances, um, you know, has licked the problem of alcoholism or drunkenness. As the Bible calls it drunkenness. It's not a disease, it's a sin. Um, that he wouldn't have any problems with self-control in any other area of his life. And yet that is not the case. And I want to begin reading at verse 8 to find out why there's this connection between subpoints 1 and 2. It says, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. Okay, those two uh, actions tend to go hand in hand. If you lay aside the commandment of God, automatically you're going to begin to pick up the traditions of man because God has made our conscience to need law. If it doesn't accept God's laws, there will be laws you'll generate or somebody else will generate, but there is going to be law that's going to govern your conscience. I grew up in churches that had as their motto... Uh, not under law, but under grace. And you'd think they were very gracious churches and non-legalistic churches. And I tell you, some of the greatest legalism that I've ever seen was in these churches that said, no law, we're not under law, we're under grace. Uh, the conscience cannot live without law. And I've always taught that antinomianism and legalism are Siamese twins. Okay, they're two sides of the same coin. You can't separate them. If you reject God's laws, automatically you're going to add something else in its place. Look at verse 9. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Now he's not saying they rejected all of God's commandments, only the ones that looked weird in their culture. And he gives one example in verses 10 through 12. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, and I should point out parenthetically here, that the Pharisees hated that law just as much as modern evangelicals hate that law. Uh, they thought that their method of dealing with juvenile delinquents was so much more compassionate and so much better informed than God's laws were. And uh, so they just ignored it. They rejected that law. But anyway... Quoting them, he says, But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or for his mother. And look down at verse 13. Making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. <clears throat> there are several scriptures that say the same thing. You can see both sides of that equation. But I want you to turn with me to one more. It's uh, Colossians chapter 2, which deals with exactly the same set of Pharisaic, Essene kind of imposition of laws that, that had been brought into the churches. It's Colossians chapter 2, and uh, these Christians were saying, we've got to do this and that in order to put a hedge around God's law, in order to make sure that we don't break these laws. Paul says, hey, it is going to be of absolutely no value against sinning to do that. Absolutely no value. Beginning at verse 20. Colossians 2, verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to its regulations? He is saying, your laws, your culture, everything needs to come from the kingdom of God. 
He says, why in the world, if you're no longer associated with them, are you so subject in your conscience to what the world thinks? So he goes on, he says, why do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. They're of no value, he said. When it comes down to brass tacks, he says, it's not going to produce holiness and it's not going to keep you from sin. Those things are useless. In Paul's eyes, absolutely useless in terms of being a hedge around the law. So the very, the very ways that they were intending these laws to be, he says, their very intention is never going to work. Uh, you've got to do it God's way. And the question I want to look at this morning is why? Why is it that the Pharisees were so concerned with being holy, and yet they broke God's laws in numerous places without realizing it. You might want to write down just the church of Corinth. Just the church of Corinth is another illustration, because here were Christians who were legalistically trying to impose their conscience issues on the whole church about eating meat. So there is the legalistic side there. And yet in Corinth, you had envy, strife, divisiveness. Chapter 3, they sinned by suing each other. In secular court, chapter 6, they sinned by being unsubmissive to their husbands and violating their role in the church and being unsubmissive to elders. Corinth was a legalistic church that was full of sin. Can you see? There's no contradiction whatsoever. A legalistic church full of sin. And there's many other examples that could be given in church history as well as uh, in the scriptures. Weak consciences tend to fall into sin even though they may be very hyper-sensitive to other issues in which there was liberty. I grew up in churches that had all kinds of spoken traditions. They didn't write them down as rules, but let me tell you, you knew when you had violated the rules. Um, you were definitely a second-class uh, citizen. You were shunned. But they had rules like this. Women were looked down on if they wore slacks, even if the slacks had a feminine cut. Uh, they were... Uh, looked down on if they wore earrings or jewelry, even though those are praised, you know, and even makeup is praised in the Old Testament. Uh, men were not allowed to wear colored shirts or grow beards. You know, this was back in the 60s. See, we had to stay as far away from being hippies as we could, okay? And so it was uh, sanctification by avoidance. They do it, okay, I guess we can't do it anymore. Um, so colored shirts weren't in. You couldn't play cards because gamblers played with cards. And I said, but they don't, they don't play with Rook. No, doesn't matter. They play with cards. You can't play with cards. Uh, <laughs> they um, said, you can't play with the pool table. And I asked them, how come? And they said, well, those are associated with bars. And so it's like, there's a long list of all kinds of things you could not do. We could not go to watch a Bambi movie at the theater not that you'd want to watch a Bambi movie, but you couldn't go to watch it because if you did, somebody else might take your lead and they might go to a triple X uh, you know, rated movie. So you get the feel, and you probably have experienced these kinds of things as well, and maybe we've imposed legalisms we're not even aware of. But I tell you, it's pervasive in the Christian church, and we have to be on guard against it. And I have found that these people tend to be very satisfied with their morality if they keep those set of man-made rules, plus if they keep... See, it's kind of a subculture, those things. You know, they were rejecting the other culture, but they got their own culture of what's normal within the church. And uh, then they would keep a few more of the biblical commandments. For instance, maybe they thought, you know, they were very opposed to stealing, 
but they wouldn't tithe, and tithing wasn't considered stealing, even though the Bible portrays it as such. Uh, wouldn't dream of lying, had no problem with gossip. Wouldn't think of drinking, but had no problem with gluttony. Uh, wouldn't think of committing murder, but uh, had no problems with uh, IUDs, you know, which, you know, even the secular people believe are abortifacient. And um, uh, I've read books that condemn fornication, but see absolutely no problem with wet dreams, you know, with uh, fornicating in your dreams. You say, oh, no, that's not a sin. That's not anything you could help. Well, let me assure you, the Bible says you can purify your dreams. And uh, I've helped several people to come to purity in their lives. But I think you get the point. They can pick a law over here, but not see the application of that law over, over there. And any of us can be subject to that. Scripture says when you add man's laws, you begin to become totally oblivious to God's laws in many areas. God has made the conscience to function in that way. It gets confused when we have strange input. It's almost like bad software, you know, going into the computer that God's put inside of us. God's designed it for one thing, and it begins to be disoriented when we put different software in there. But don't think that it's legalism to follow the small details of God's law. Some people think if you're, if you're detail-oriented, you're legalist. That's not legalism. Legalism is adding to God's laws. You know, if, if little details were legalist, legalistic, then why would God have struck down Uzzah, you know, when the oxen stumbled and he righted the ark and God says, hey, you can't ever touch that ark, and he was struck dead. I mean, there's a lot of illustrations in the Scripture. God's concerned about details. So that is not legalism, but adding to God's laws are. Now, let me take... Actually, let me read you point four in your outline. When a person feels false guilt over a legalistic rule that he is breaking, but breaks it anyway... He is led into greater sin in other areas because he is conditioning himself to in ignore an indicator light, albeit a faulty one, so that it won't work even when it needs to. And I want to just read for you the <clears throat> first verse there. 1 Corinthians 8, <clears throat> verse 7, describes weaker brothers <clears throat> who are eating what they think is sinful to eat. Okay, they're sinning against their conscience says, for some with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Then in verse 9, he talks about how our actions of liberty can potentially cause people to stumble. And in verse 10, he says, for if anyone, and he's speaking of any of those weaker brothers, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols, and because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish. Now, that's pretty strong language. Why is he talking about perishing? Well, he's saying it's more than just falling into sin and then saying, oh, man, I've sinned again, repenting and getting up, because there your conscience is being aligned to God. But this is saying he's sinning against his conscience. It's really not a sin what he's doing, but his conscience says it is. So he's sinning against his conscience, and he does it anyway. His conscience becomes progressively more hardened, and it's in effect smashing the light that's on the dashboard, and, and it can lead him then to never work when it should work and lead him to destruction. So he says, um, Shall your weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And so he's saying that those with weak consciences have a tendency, when they sin against it, to be emboldened and to go far worse into any given sin than a person who doesn't have a weak conscience. 
Let me give you some statistics to back this up. We'll take the issue of alcohol. I received a packet of information from an alcoholic, uh, uh, alcohol rehabilitation center in Phoenix, Arizona, and they provided some national statistics of alcohol abuse, and I was particularly fascinated with the religious uh, part of that. Uh, among Roman Catholics, the statistics tended to line up almost identically with uh, non-religious people. Uh, 10% of those who drank were alcoholics. And now, they didn't admit to being alcoholics. It's interesting, the way the questionnaire was worded, it drew out the indications that they were alcoholics, even if they denied it. Um, but there was 89% drank, and 10% of those were alcoholics. Uh, Lutherans, 85% drank, 5% were alcoholic. Now, the thing I found fascinating is that in evangelical denominations, uh, there was virtually no alcoholism, almost no alcoholism in denominations that saw it as a Christian liberty, and from the youngest days, they didn't think anything about it. And there was the minimum figure of 14% and it go, went up from there, depending on the denomination. But a minimum of 14% of those who drank in denominations where it was a no-no to drink were, became alcoholics. And here was their conclusion after looking at that portion of the study. Note that this chart tends to confirm evidence that a higher incidence of problems occurs among drinkers who come from groups which traditionally have been abstinent. Now, I'm not positive on this, but I suspect the reason is exactly what we're talking about in Mark 7 and Colossians chapter 2. Christ told his disciples they could be infected with the false idea of moral defilement. Verses 18 through 19, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart? And in verses 20 through 23, what comes out of the man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a man. Christ is saying, you Pharisees may think that the problem of lust would be completely solved if you could just get women to dress right out there and dress modestly and then nobody would ever have any problem. He says, no, that's not going to solve the problem because the problem of adultery comes from within. It doesn't come from without. Now, yes, maybe they stumble people. They cause people to stumble. But he says, until you lick the heart, until you guard the heart, you're not going to be prepared to resist temptations and Satan's going to be sure that temptations will come at some point or another. So he's focusing on the inside. And unfortunately, uh, we've still not come to the point where we're dealing with how to totally realign the conscience. We've given hints and some indicators, but that's going to have to be a later sermon. But Christ says the problems within, and those legalists who see the issues of cards and dresses and beards and pool tables and drinking and other issues, what they see as the problem is invariably out there. It's almost never in the heart. It's outside of myself. You know, it's taking the responsibility off of me. Uh, they think that it is, you know, the problem. You know, it's almost like a metaphysical view of sin. The sin's something that's out there that nabs you instead of sin being a choice that comes from inside. You know, demon alcohol. Uh, that, it's the fault of the alcohol. It's not the fault of the, of the person. Or it's genetics. You know, that's another thing that's outside of the heart, right? 
Uh, they say genetics is the reason people are homosexual or that they're drunkards or that there's this or that. Now, I'm not denying that genetics can make one person more predisposed to a given temptation than another person would be or that his upbringing, a lot of people blame it on their parents, you know, or their upbringing or their, their social environment. Those things can impact and make the temptation stronger. But Christ says, you've got to look at the heart. And until the heart is conquered, you're never going to conquer the problem. And so that means that people in the rescue missions are, have never conquered the problem. All it is is an outside bandage, bandage. And they're going to transfer the same problem that led to alcoholism or drunkenness, they're going to transfer it to some other area in life and some other addiction because they're not looking in, in the right place. By the way, the motive of the prohibition movement was to make it more difficult to sin. Uh, it was started by liberals, and they had the idea that man is inherently good. He's not inherently evil. The reason men are doing evil things is because of a bad environment. If we can clean up the environment, then we can perfect man. That's straight out of their literature where it comes from. It was not an evangelical start. Evangelicals got on the bandwagon later and never did understand why. But Christ pointed out the problem is not the environment, any other outside thing. Uh, like Pogo said, the enemy is us, and we've got to focus on us, and uh, we've got to realize that Christ is sufficient to deal with us. And that's why the passage in Colossians that we read said, these man-made rules, they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Why? Because they're all focused outwardly. They're trying to deal with those, those uh, temptations out there. They're not dealing with the heart. Paul in that same chapter said, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. They'll cheat you out of joy in the Holy Spirit. They'll cheat you out of true victory. And then he goes on to say, you are complete in Him. Now, I do want to end by making some applications from Matthew 23. And I know it's very odd, very strange to make applications from a passage you didn't preach on. But uh, this passage amplifies on some of the things that we're talking about. This was such a pervasive problem. You will see chapters all through the New Testament that are dealing with it. And what this chapter does is it shows to us not only that legalism goes into the kind of sinfulness that we've talked about. It's going to illustrate it in the Pharisees. But I think it's a fantastic gauge by which we can judge our consciences. Are our consciences lined up to God or are they lined up to man? Do we need to work on them? So this is kind of a diagnostic test that you can do. And in case you think that we couldn't be affected by Pharisees, you know, why don't we look at some other passages? Why the Pharisees? Well, Christ warned his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he described the leaven as being the teaching of the Pharisees. If they could not have been impacted by those Pharisees, he wouldn't have to warn them to beware. Even his apostles, you know, these men who were picked by Christ, trained by Christ, he said, you've got to beware because it'll take you down. But he not only told them to beware of the culture, the religious culture, that's the, the leaven of the Pharisees, but also the secular culture. He says in the same phrase, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. I think it's Mark 8, maybe. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Okay, that was the culture of secularism. And why would we have to beware of that? Well, because Christians can, they can get sucked into the subcultures of the, a religious group or they can get sucked in by the, the culture of secularism that's out there. The Hellenists did that. They thought of themselves as good Christians, you know, good Jews, you know, this is before Christ. 
but they thought of themselves as uh, being okay, and yet they had been sucked in by the, the culture that was around them in terms of, uh, you know, the nude bathing, the gladiatorial um, contest that drew blood, and there are many different ways, and they said, what, what's wrong with this? Everybody does this, okay? They had been taken in by the leaven of, of Herod, and they were called the Herodians or the, uh, the, the Hellenists. Okay, so let's take a look, Matthew 23 and verse 3. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. They say and they do not do. Okay, that's hypocrisy. Um, verse 28 says they were full of hypocrisy, and that is a, that's something that can infect us so easily. I mean, it can be as simple as yelling at the kids to stop yelling. Uh, my, my kids this uh, last week... Um, were getting a laugh out of, I don't know if they saw it on, on TV or where it was, but they were imitating somebody. Please be quiet. You're making too much noise. Let's be silent. You know, and they were thinking that was so, that was so humorous. But what they're getting there is the humor of hypocrisy, you know, saying one thing and doing something entirely different. Now, there's two kinds of hypocrisy. The first kind is very sensitive to what other people think. And it tends to hide the way we really are. It doesn't want to be open. It doesn't want to be vulnerable because we might get hurt in the process, okay? And so they put up a facade. And um, Robert Savage said, the full-time job of some people is trying to hide what they really are. So that's one kind of hypocrisy. There's another kind of hypocrisy that is utterly insensitive to the way other people think and insensitive to their own uh, sinfulness. <clears throat> First side is sensitive to their own sinfulness. They hide it. The second side, you know, it might be like a person who, you know, complains that the maid has been stealing all the towels, and the husband says, well, which towels? All the towels we picked up at the hotel in Miami, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't seem to cross over, you know, in, in, in the mind. Um, the... Some of the most insensitive, hurtful, uncultured people who just seem to take delight in poking at others have the thinnest skin if somebody else pokes at them. It's just an odd thing. You, you see it. You see it all the time. And, and that's a form of hypocrisy. Do you expect things of your wife or husband or children that you don't expect of yourself? Verse 4. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves do not move them with one of their fingers. What do we expect of our children and of others? Uh, verse 5 gives another dimension to their Christianity. It says, but all their works they do to be seen by men. Now, I'm not going to go into the specifics here, but let me just ask this, just as a diagnostic question of your conscience. Do you do the right thing just because other people will notice? It's too aligned to men, if that's the case. I remember the first job uh, th that uh, I got as a janitor. Uh, I had begun working through this because my conscience was so aligned to what other people thought growing up in that, uh, that environment. But as a janitor, I was uh, uh, trained and instructed that I needed to mop every square inch of the floor. I needed to move the furniture. I needed to go under the cans. I needed to wipe down all the cupboards and everything. And I said, okay, fine, and I was doing that. You know, after a few days, I began to notice there's some rooms that nobody would go into. 
And I said, how many times do you have to clean a clean floor? You know, maybe I'll just do a quick rub through and immediately God was faithful to say to my conscience, no, you're doing this for me and I see what you're doing. And uh, you've already committed yourself to cleaning in a certain way. You need to do it right. And so I did. And uh, after a period of time, I noticed that, uh, you know, it pays to be honest because uh, the, uh, the, the boss would frequently move furniture to see if you moved it and would put little pieces of paper underneath furniture and things like that. And so it probably saved my bacon, but the most important things, it saved my conscience because I was realigning it to God and saying, okay, God, I want to be sensitive to you even if nobody else sees or appreciates it. I don't want to be a man pleaser. I want to be uh, pleasing you. Okay, uh, point number four deals with the self-seeking motive that drove the Pharisees. It says they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, you can think of your own examples. Are you the type that wants to be first to get the cookie, first to be in line, first to get into the car? I want that seat. No, this one's, this one's reserved for me, you know, as it is a selfish orientation that you have. Uh, how does your conscience react to that? Is it only when the parents see that it's bothered? Is it only when others see, or is it when God sees? Do you take advantage of people economically? Verse five, number uh, point five. Or fail to keep your promises, point number six. See, if a hyper-spiritual Pharisee could fall into that, we can fall into it too. Uh, point number seven says they excused their violations of God's law because they were keeping other laws. Verses 23 through 24, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done. Notice he was not criticizing their being picky uni. He was not criticizing their tithing on the, on the uh, what, what were the things here, the anise and cumin, you know, the herbs. He said, these you ought to have done. Fine. But he says, without leaving, the other is undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You know, it's so easy for us to feel very comfortable with uh, ourselves before God because look at all of the sacrifices I'm making. Look at all of the ways I'm serving God. It's okay, you know, you just put that out of your mind that we're violating these laws because I'm okay with God on these. Look at all of the details that I'm keeping of God's law. Judge your own conscience. Point eight speaks of being comfortable with sins like extortion and self-indulgence. Uh, point nine, being comfortable with inner sin, but uncomfortable with outer sin. Okay, look at verses 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And I think this is perhaps the best test that you can take for your conscience. <clears throat> If it's troubled by inward things, you know it's at least partially aligned to God. If it's, if it's uh, uh, troubled only when other people see it, boy, you've got a lot of work that you're going to have to do to realign your conscience. Uh, in fact, when pride comes up in your heart, if it's aligned to God, you're going to feel grieved over that pride. You're going to confess it to sin before anybody even knows that you're prideful. 
You're just going to see it there. You're going to deal with it. Now, if there's one thing you can learn from this sermon, it's that your conscience needs to seek to live by all of God's law just as seriously as it needs to seek to avoid legalism. And so I want to urge you to strive to have a conscience with one law, one Lord, and uh, one sense of peace and comfort, and it's the Lord God. Father, we come before you thankful for the richness of your word, thankful that it exposes the corruptness of our hearts. <clears throat> Lord, we don't want to uh, continue to have the cancer of a bad conscience in us, and we thank you that your work does do its cutting upon us. Help us, Lord, not to resist that cutting. Help us not to resist the, the pain of having reformation of our conscience because we want to enter into the joy, the freedom, the liberty of a conscience that is rightly oriented toward you. I pray that you would bless this, your people, and encourage their hearts and give them perseverance, Father, as they seek to uh, realign their consciences. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.